Hello everyone, welcome to the Lisa Burke Show and I'm delighted to have a wonderful array of guests today including a couple from RTL Today Radio. We've got Melissa Dalton, Sasha Kyo, we've got Philippe Lamish who is an artist and biologist from Luxembourg and joining us from the UK we have Rachel Watkin. I hope you've had a wonderful week and uh, I hope everything is going well in the lead up to Christmas which is always a tsunami of social engagements. Now to start with I'm going to turn to Rachel Watkin, who's joining us online from the UK. If you don't know Rachel, she's a multi-award winning entrepreneur who set up Tiny Box Company from scratch in a bedroom 14 years ago, now turning over about £10 million. Born in Devon in the early 70s, she experienced a really traumatic early childhood and spent formative years in a children's home, then returned to her parents. But that unfortunately meant more physical, emotional abuse, moving from caravans to mansions and back again. And somehow Rachel put herself through A-levels, university, has worked in Sierra Leone, has set up many entrepreneurial companies. And through all of this, health issues have paralleled Rachel's life. So, Rachel, I could go on and on. There's so much to talk about your life. But I just want to say welcome to our show here in Luxembourg, first of all. Hi, Lisa. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honour. Well, it's it's really wonderful to have you. And uh, I didn't even mention that you're one of the awardees on Dragon's Den, uh, but we'll come to that. What I'm most interested in, however, is your story of resilience. So uh, tell us a little bit about your childhood, which was, I think, a, an extremely unusual one. But the thing is, we don't know if it's unusual or not, because we don't really hear your voice, the confident voice like yours coming from a childhood which you experienced. Yeah, um, I had an incredibly unusual childhood. And do you know what? In lots of ways, Lisa, I was really lucky because it has given me resilience skills. But it started when I was um, I, I was born into a family with my stepfather because I was the result of an affair. And as soon as I was born, it was obvious that I wasn't my stepfather's child because they were all very dark and I was very blonde. <laughs> and, and as a result, my mother's relationship with my stepfather broke down massively. And it came to light that my stepfather actually wanted to be a woman. And it was pure fluke that there was an accident outside our house and the police came to get a statement from my mum. And instead of seeing my mum with me, saw my stepdad dressed in her clothes. And I was on the floor with no clothes on. And I was blue because there was no heating. It was Christmas or 8th of December. And um, and I was just had like a wet nappy around my bum. So they called social services straight away. And social services came to get me from my stepfather, who apparently threw me like a rugby ball at social services and just said, take her. Um, So I ended up in hospital, we think, for about five weeks and then went to a children's home. And I was there until I was three. Uh, The social services went back and got my two elder sisters. And uh, yeah, they were also in care, but in a different wing of the children's home. So you weren't even kept together? No, no. I mean, these are formative years in a child's life. Any parent is told that those first years uh, make a child. And somehow you've got through all of this with such strength and such mental stability, it seems. How did your siblings cope? So my siblings definitely, 
in some ways, I think I was the lucky one because I was so young. Uh, my my sis, next sister up is two years older, so she she was about three when we got taken into care, and then my uh, sister above her would have been four and a half. And I think in lots of ways it was a lot tougher on them because they'd already built that relationship with my mother, uh, which as as a really young baby, it wasn't there to the same level, I guess. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think they they had it a lot tougher, and they've had a much tougher journey than me. Well, it shows something about uh, your mental resilience as well. But then after that time in the children's homes, you were returned to your own family. Whose bright idea was that? (laughs) Social services. (laughs) So my uh, my stepfather transitioned and became a woman. And uh, we think it was the first, if not one of the first divorce cases in the UK of two women actually filing for divorce. And um, you see, Rachel, my- you have so many sub stories to your family life. It really, I'm, I'm just waiting for the Hollywood movie here. I haven't even mentioned the fact that this would have been a highly unusual step to take in, in the 70s in the UK. It seems vaguely normal nowadays, but definitely not back then. Oh, no, it was it was really rare back then. Uh, and, uh, you know, the surgery was still pioneering and fair play to my stepdad it, it it didn't go particularly well and the hormone treatment wasn't there so he did end up as a woman but uh, still very male in appearance and with stubble but um anyway social service my mum then married my uh, my real father and social services returned us to my real father's house in suffolk but of course my real father had a one son from a previous marriage and suddenly was uh, given these three girls who were highly damaged from two years of care. We'd only had one visit from my mother during the two years. So effectively, we we were strangers. And uh, when we returned, my real father just couldn't cope. You know, three, three troubled young children was, was too much for him. So he hit the bottle. And... Uh, Talking to him as an adult much later on in his life, he doesn't remember most of it because he was in like an alcoholic haze. But he also, he he, he clearly had mental health issues and kept creating fictitious lives. So for one minute, he was uh, 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 an auctioneer and then he was an estate agent, then he was an accountant. Uh, he just kept transforming himself into another character and and somehow everyone around him believed him and thought that, yes, he was this uh, very successful auctioneer and then he was a spiritual healer and he was, uh, how do you call it, the next messiah and did spiritual healing for about four years. And what was your mother doing during this time? My mother was clearly bipolar, you know, looking back now. Uh, she she would manically uh, like redecorate the house or have this uh, tremendous energy and then she would end up going to bed for weeks. So as children, I, I just remember from a very young age, sort of four or five, there's being this great big pile of washing in front of the sort of twin tub washing machine and us rooting into the wet pile to try and try and find the least mouldy and the least dirty clothes to go to school in. Because she she wasn't there, you know, she was in bed with another headache or 
Um, and how were you treated at school? Because during all of this time, with this being your family life at home and you being returned by social services, one hopes that there's a net out there for children in this situation. This is why your story is so important, in the, particularly in the winter months, as I think of the children out there who may be suffering in this way. We hope that there's a net out there of care through schooling, through social services to pick up children like this. Who did you have? I think that society has moved on a lot since then. I look back now and there was there was no support network at school. Um, my nickname was Fleabag. My sisters were called Fleabag. We were the trailer trash scum, uh, you know, of the system. And and as a result, if anything, we were literally classed by the school also as second class citizens. And uh, I, I won't go into it in too much detail, but on the school premises, there was a lot of sexual abuse. And, you know, at a very young age, age five, six and seven. And unfortunately for me, my parents moved me age seven uh, to a different school. Towards but, y- you uh, and your siblings? Uh, certainly towards me. I I don't think that my siblings experienced the same level of, of abuse at that school. But, um, yeah, it, it, they weren't kind. Where have you found your sense of normality through all of this? Do you know what the great thing is, Lisa? There is no normal. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 there is no normal. That's true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but because I never knew what I was walking into, my uh, both my parents were only children. My stepfather was an only child. So we, I only had the three parents and we weren't allowed to mix with local children. My, my parents told us that we were aristocrats and that they were peasants. Uh, so, and we have to say here, you know, you have moved from living in a caravan to at one point you were living in a mansion in the UK because your father had somehow managed to convince somebody that this was OK. Oh, yeah, this is what I'm saying. He he really had the gift of the gab and he convinced people that uh, that he was whatever he decided to be. So at that stage, he'd set up a business called Altering and Restorations, which restored grade one and grade two listed buildings. And the the people that owned um, the priory in, in, in Suffolk agreed that he could have the lease on a very low rent if he restored the building. Uh, but to everybody else who didn't know that agreement, they, you know, they thought that he was the lord of the manor. And and I believed it as well. I thought that we, we were aristocrats. Uh, it was only this year that I found out we weren't. <laughs> it's amazing. That, and actually, it's only this year as well that I think with your sister, you're writing a book about your your childhood experiences. And you went back to the Devon County Council, I suppose it might be, or the social services, to get documentation from that time and you found out more details of what happened to you back then. My mum had always told us that we'd been kidnapped as children because I had vague memories, but I didn't really know what had gone on. So, and it was never talked about in our house, you know, that you could not talk about anything emotional in our house. Uh, if I mentioned periods or anything like that, you know, it was absolutely forbidden. So I never really knew what went on. And yes, this year I wrote to um, Devonshire County Council and asked for my notes. And when you read it in black and white about your own life, it, it's very damning. You know, that the report said that I was about to lose my toes and my feet because of the level of hypothermia. Um, and that when they 
the social services went to collect me and my stepfather picked me out of my cot, a normal eight months uh, reaction is to put their arms in the air to be lifted out. And apparently I just flinched and cowered. So, you know, it was obvious that I was already being physically abused at eight months old. All of this, somehow you seem to have this innate mental strength you know, that that not everybody has. And, and from that, I want to jump to your teenage years. Um, tell us about how you managed in all of this to get yourself through A-levels and you got yourself through university. Honestly, Lisa, I have no idea. <laughs> by, by the age of 14, my dad had um, gone bankrupt. We had to move out of the giant mansion and I'd gone to boarding school for a year, uh, but still believing that my parents had money. Uh, and of course, they didn't. They never paid my fees. So I got kicked out and I got sent to a, a secondary school for six weeks. I just about started to build relationships there. And the parents said they were moving again. And I ended up in a secondary school in um, in Oxfordshire. Didn't know anybody. And because we'd moved around so much, you lose the stability of friends that you can go back to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was incredibly isolating. But I, I somehow managed to get jobs to to fund myself from the age of 14. Um, and I'm not going to lie, of course, I went off the rails. Of course, I went into drugs, alcohol, got arrested for all of that um, by the age of 20. But somehow I knew that I needed to get some kind of qualifications if I was going to not follow the same pattern as my parents. And I needed that financial security. So, yeah, put myself through uh, GCSEs, uh, worked my way through A-levels. My worst job doing that was putting rubber ends on car aerials, but <laughs> needs must. <laughs> and um, and at the end of my A-levels, I, I got a job because I thought that I'd flunked the A-levels and the university wasn't an option. And I went to work for a bathroom company and there was a really lovely lady that owned the bathroom company. And when I went for the interview, she said, you're not going to go to university, are you? I said, of course not. Uh, when I get the, got the result, she said, don't waste it. And she was so kind and supported me in going through the clearing system back then to, to get into uni. Well, it's people like that that I'm also wondering about, because in order to manage to veer off what might seem like a normal route for a child brought up in the situation that you were, you, you've gone completely differently and you're incredibly successful nowadays. But you need those little mentors and angels along the way. I'm also thinking about friendships. You know, it's destabilising in the extreme when you can't stay in one school for more than a year. Um, how have you managed to develop roots or friendships? Not having had the chance to know what they were when you were a child. Yeah, I think that I I was very lucky as a child in in in, in a strange way. I was I was very very blonde and white haired, and people kind of wanted to look after me that were outside of the the circle. Uh, so after I got out of the horrific school, I went to a, a school in Norwich for a few years, and the teachers there were much kinder. And then when I was eleven. I, I was allowed to mix with a village girl and it was then that I sort of learned that my life was nothing like other people's. That was the first dawning of it. 
and her family was so kind to me and they used to feed me they had a fish and chip van mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. I couldn't eat the fish but I ate the chips because you have and an allergy to fish it turns out I have an allergy to fish <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I was I used to go around there and watch television in the warm with the fire and you know this was like so novel and <laughs> and lovely and um and I used to be around there so much um the, the parents were incredibly tolerant of me and um, that was my first real sense, I guess, of feeling loved and feeling wanted. It's uh, a wonderful um, story. Yeah. It's a beautiful uh, story. And I, I don't think they're aware of the impact that they had on my life. The the woman, Sally, she, she knew that things weren't right at home, but she was always very diplomatic. But she did say to me one day, she came around to see the parents on something. And she said to me one day, she said, Rachel, why does your mother keep all of her saucepans and her casserole dishes in the garden? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the obvious place, I suppose? <laughs> <laughs> when you've got a mother who is, you know, who is mentally ill and bipolar, my mum just used to, for whatever reason, just dump them around the garden. And the garden was literally dotted with them. <laughs> I'm glad you can laugh about this. Now, I'm going to jump out again because you did, of course, go to university and successfully started out with John Lewis, which is a very famous department store, of course, in the UK. But uh, I want to move to a next stage in your life where you ended up in Sierra Leone. Not at any, uh, you know, it's not a usual work spot or placement, but you were there during a civil war. And many people who go into these zones come out with PTSD, but you didn't. So perhaps your childhood set you up to be, you know, the most magnificent war reporter possible. I think what I was never aware of, and it was actually a a doctor of psychology that pointed out to me recently, uh, was the case. Because I never knew what I was walking into at home, I never knew whether my uh, my dad was going to be drunk, whether the stepfather was going to be there, whether they were going to be fighting, that most people were worried about you know, what they looked like, what their friends would think of them, or, you know, all of that kind of um, self-torture we put ourselves through as humans. I was worried about how am I going to survive the next evening or, you know, what am I going to be walking into tonight? So I did learn to adapt really easily. Yeah. Uh, fast forward to age 27, I was working for a software company and it was purely by chance the the phone went at Christmas and the office is deserted And it was the accountant general of Sierra Leone. And he said that they had a big problem of fraud. They needed to set up a new government system. And could our company help them? Normally, that wouldn't have been my job. But I went to speak to our sales director and said, can I run with this? Can I take the project over? And and he said, yes, go for it. So the next thing I know, we build the system in the UK, fly it out to Sierra Leone, and I go to help configure it and to teach the government how to use it, basically. And how did, and I had, how did that work no out with the government? Because I know at that time, uh, the ministers were fairly well paid, but it didn't seep down to the local people, the masses. No, it didn't. Um, a lot of the funds seemed to be um, uh, misappropriated, shall we say. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I had no idea what I let myself in for at all. Um, I had no idea what real poverty looked like. There was roadblocks every hundred yards. If you were out after 10 o'clock, you were literally shot. 
you know, it was an, another world. And talk um, to us about some of the scenes that you saw there, because it's we we've seen photos, but I'm pretty sure if I asked any of my guests here today, I don't imagine any of you've been to Sierra Leone. No, 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 no. <laughs> so, so just paint us a picture of what you literally flew into. And uh, this is 98, a, 99 we're talking about. Yeah, it's not a hot tourist spot. <laughs> um, so you fly into Lungi Airport, which is actually an island, and then you catch the ferry over to Freetown. And uh, the, the, the ferry looked like um, a load of aeroplane seats that had been stuck onto a boat. <laughs> it was really bizarre. Anyway, I was staying with the accountant general because half the city was bombed out and there was nowhere else to, to stay. You know, the hotels weren't safe. And um, yeah, my first morning in Freetown, I got up and there was no one there. And you could hear the gunfire going around on the outskirts of the city. But the house was deserted. There was no houseboy. There was no servants. Um, and I literally thought, oh, my God, everyone's been taken in the night and I'm here. There's no phones. So how the hell am I going to survive? Um, but luckily, the accountant general walked in about 20 minutes later <laughs> and people started appearing. I was like, OK, I'm going to survive this then. <laughs> and, but um, I was working in the Treasury building and it sounded like horse racing on on the news channel. And I asked one of the ladies what was happening. You know, was it horse racing or something? And she said, oh, no, look out the window. It's um, it's 25 rebels being shot on the square. My God. And uh, yeah, they were literally being shot one after the other. And they were calling out the names on the radio. Well, <laughs> it's quite hard to, to draw a thread through your life because it, it's really so jarring from one to the other to the other. But the, the main thread for me is this immense resilience that you have mentally. But then if we jump to your physical resilience, perhaps the toll is taken there. Um, so if you don't mind, could you describe to us a little bit about um, some health issues that you've had to also cope with through your life? That area I've been a little less lucky in. <laughs> uh, we, we have a, a, a genetic disorder in our family and uh, it means that I'm not protected from cancer in the same way as other people. But actually, my health issues started when I was 29. I'd come back from Sierra Leone and, um, and I had a lot of ab abdominal pain. So they opened me up, found out it was my appendix stitched me back up again but something went wrong and I don't know what went wrong the hospital lost my notes but it meant that I had seizures every day for about the next six weeks and um, it took me about nine months to have enough strength to be able to walk further than the bathroom so in that process I literally lost everything that was my rock bottom point because nobody could tell me what was wrong with me nobody could tell me if I was ever going to be well again if I've, I'd ever get out of bed again, let alone work. Um, and I lost everything. I lost my house. I lost my partner, obviously my job, my car that went with the job. Not that I could drive anyway. But uh, yeah, that was rock bottom. But strangely enough, my parents said, move back in with us. And it would, my dad actually said to me that my mum wanted to look after me, almost like a, a healing process for her, I guess, um, or... Uh, guilt relief I don't know um, but actually it worked really well and by the time my parents died I ended up with relationships rebuilt and ended up actually very close to my father before he died 
Which is so extremely I got healing in many ways emotionally. Yeah, yeah, it was. And and my father, you know, in recent years, when I talked to him about what had happened in childhood, he was clearly really devastated because he was never aware in his drunken haze of the impact that he had on had on us as 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 young people which is an extraordinary thought that anyway we 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 won't go back to what his mindset may have been <laughs> yeah. because I want to focus on you and then from yeah. this you've always also had this entrepreneurial mentality and you have built many companies um and and I want to start with the foundations of what is now perhaps your most famous one which is the tiny box company yeah so I'd come back from Sierra Leone, obviously hit these health issues. and But what never left me was the level of poverty on the ground. So I started a really early fair trade jewellery business where the jewellery was designed in the UK, uh, but made in third world countries. And it was actually my younger sister that said, well, what are you going to do about the packaging? You know, you need something sustainable and ethical that ties in with the jewellery. Uh, and I was like, oh, good point. <laughs> and I went round to all of the UK manufacturers and they all said, oh, lead times of 10 to 12 weeks, 1,000 units per size of box, uh, and you'll have to pay tooling as well. And I said, well, hang on a minute, I'm a startup. I only need like 20 or 30. Uh, and whenever I said I wanted something sustainable and ethical, I was laughed at, you know, it, it just wasn't a thing. And I ended up at a, a an exhibition at Birmingham against on the search for packaging and I just remember sliding down the wall in a very professional way <laughs> and just sitting there thinking fine I'll do it myself and I then moved into the British Library where you can get so many um, uh, marketing reports and free data because I wanted to do a sanity check on whether it was just me or whether there were lots of other people that had the same issue. But you've and also course, just mentioned, the... sorry to interrupt you, you've also just mentioned something no. very important for anybody based in the UK, that there is an enormous resource there and people may not know that it's there in the British Library. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's free to join and you can just immerse yourself there. And um, there's so much data there that, that that's free of charge that otherwise you would pay thousands for, for for these marketing reports. But of course, this was the start of the boom of Etsy and not on the high street. And, and I discovered that, no, it wasn't just me. There was a whole um, community out there that was looking for a similar solution. And then you created it and and through this, you ended up on Dragon's Den. So what was that experience like? I'd somehow acquired a business partner on the way who was uh, he was a radio broadcaster. But um, oh, we get around us radio broadcasters. Uh, <laughs> and um, he had he, he was very well known in the UK at the time, but he'd uh, fallen into the trap of the drugs and alcohol that went with the lifestyle. And, For some um, people, not all of us. <laughs> not all of us, no. <laughs> and um, he came out of rehab and asked if he could come and work with me and just do a normal job. But then he soon realised that he he missed the broadcasting, he missed the lifestyle, but didn't want to let me down. So he applied for Dragon's Den, but didn't tell me, thinking that he would be able to re-kickstart his career and be in the public eye again, and that I would have business partners. So I didn't know about it until the BBC called and said, come on the show. <laughs> And uh, by then, I thought, well, I've got nothing to lose. You know, we had nothing 
patentable, hardly any trading history. I knew nothing about packaging. Uh, but I was like, okay, we've got a 10-minute marketing window on national telly. Let's do it. Uh, never expected anyone to invest. But they did. And, they really uh, did. They, yeah, we walked in and there was just five stony faces looking at us. And I just remember my business partner saying to me beforehand, it's really important you keep cool and don't get nervous because it will show in your voice. And the first clip, as you, you see, is me looking at him whilst he's hyperventilating. <laughs> <laughs> What's oh. going on with him? <laughs> but you just have this coolness that's uh, maybe inherent in you because of everything that you went through in your childhood. And of course, you have uh, two dragons who did uh, invest in you for quite a big chunk of your company, unfortunately. But they did invest. They did, yes. And um, and what's so funny is that one of the dragons who didn't invest said uh, sustainable packaging is always going to be niche, Rachel. <laughs> and now here we are in a sustainable world and it's only getting more and more sustainable. Um, and bringing us up to today, then you're running this. I mean, we haven't even mentioned how you've managed to help so many people during COVID and managed to get your business through COVID as well. But you're doing all of this. Nonetheless, in 2016 and 2019, you suffered from cancer and and it's come back again now. That's right. Yes. Um, I think that that has been a, a bit of a sticking point of holding the company back um, because, yes, 2016, I had breast cancer. cancer. Luckily, it was caught really early. Uh, so I had a lumpectomy and radiotherapy and it was all fine. And then my sister was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. And I had a hunch that I had no symptoms whatsoever. And, you know, this is a warning to everybody that if you have a hunch, follow that instinct. Because I went and paid to have a full body scan. And they phoned me two days later and said, you've got a two centimeter tumor in your right lung. And, and I always envisaged that I would be breathless or have a cough or, or symptoms uh, but in fact, early stage cancer, you don't. And um, fortunately for me, again, it was caught really early. So I went to Guy's Hospital and they removed the bottom third of my lung through keyhole surgery. And uh, yes, again, fortunately, it hadn't spread. And I've, since then, day, yes. I, yeah, since then, I've been going for for regular scans every six months. And I had my LASIS scan in October and they said, yes, you have breast cancer in your other breast. So again, caught really early. So if people get offered the treatment of, of sorry, the process of mastectomy and scanning, please go. Because when it's caught early enough, again, th there's no suggestion that it's spread or anything. So this time we I, I am opting for a, just having a double mastectomy. Rachel, I have to say you're one of the most inspiring people I have ever had the privilege to talk to. And yes, you've had incredible success with your businesses, but it's your life story that for me, it literally gives me goosebumps. And I'm just so happy that we have your voice on my show and hopefully many, many other shows as well, because you give a voice to young people who may have been or are in similar situations to you when you were a child. What would your message to them be? I think it's so sad that we talk ourselves out of everything because of lack of confidence and because of lack of self-belief. And if you can just lose that 
that negative monkey brain just for a day, you know, to allow yourself to be everything that you can be and not allow your past to define you. We, we let people of influence define us uh, as to who we are as humans. And a lot of the time, are they actually worthy of that definition that they put on us? So I would ask people to question themselves on that and just dream big and allow yourself to be what you're capable of being. And I also want your your advice and message, a Christmas message to any entrepreneurs out there, because I know actually, despite your busy life, you open up on Thursdays to support any entrepreneurs out there, and particularly female business women. I do. I do. Um, it was my husband that said, I had a go at me once because somebody had told me they'd set up a new business. And I said, oh, well done. That's that's great. And and he said to me, well, why didn't you stop and help her and talk to her about your journey? And I said, well, why would I? I don't want to be the big I am. And he said, you're missing the point. It's such such a daunting journey when you set up a business. If you'd have said about your journey, it helps other people know that it's possible. So now I run free clinics and it's for any businesses that are struggling, male or female, and they can book a clinic and talk about anything. They can talk about their life or any business problems. And if I can't help them, then I will help direct them in in the, the way that they need to go. And my sister now runs that with me as well. Uh, because she's much better on the marketing. Uh, yeah, so anyone that needs help out there, feel free to contact us. That's a, a wonderful offer, a, a fantastic offer to have time with you and your your advice on the business front. And then finally, I'd love your message to people who are going through the cancer journey, which again, you seem to do with such magnificent grace and strength of mind. We have a choice. Every day we have a choice. I was driving to work the other day and on one side it was pouring with rain of the road, that is. And on the other side, the sun had come out and there was a rainbow. And I thought, you know what? This is every day. We have the choice where we can face the rain and feel sorry for ourselves or we can look at the sun and the rainbow and the beauty of everything around us and enjoy it because life is so short and we spend so much time worrying about trivialities instead of trying to enjoy the journey. So, yeah, try and look at the, the bright side of things. Thank you so much, Rachel. And we wish you the very, very best of luck with your upcoming operation and for all of the wonderful things that you're going to do in your life after that. Well, thank you so much for having me on your show. And we hope you can stay with us for the rest of the show. But, uh, but with that, I'd I'm going to. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much, Rachel. The Lisa Burke Show. Well, following on from that uh, very, very deep and meaningful conversation with um, Rachel, I'm now turning to my colleague, Melissa Dalton. I've given you the very, very difficult situation of following Rachel. <laughs> but for those of you who don't know Melissa, she is, of course, the host here at RTL Today Radio of The Home Stretch, which you can hear every afternoon from 3 till 6pm. And there's all sorts on RTL Play and blah, blah, blah. But you're here to talk about your other life, which is that of an actress and particularly with a focus on improv. Yes, and it, I'm so inspired by Rachel's story. And I think as a as a kind of um, transition from what she was saying at the end there about 
being confident to do what you want to do and not focusing on being afraid and looking up at other people. I think improv is a really good example of that because it does require a bit of courage. You know, you've got to come together with people, lay yourself bare and work in a group with strangers. And it can be exhilarating, you know, if you just let yourself go into it. So I hope that uh, that's a little bit of a transition. It's a very good transition. Well, I was thinking as well, the two things you picked up there, I was thinking her father must have been a brilliant actor. (laughs) Yes. And I was also thinking that that confidence that she really oozes and where did she get that from? She's chosen to have that. I, mean, I say she, you're still on the line, Rachel. <laughs> I think you're still on the line there, Rachel. But um, so confidence, when a person comes to you for improv, I suppose we should circle back and say what improv actually is. So improv is a, a style of theatre, but it has no script whatsoever. No script, no planning, no writers, no directors. Um, that would people, terrify some people. It, it would. And it, it is kind of terrifying in a way because you're getting up on stage and you are just looking into somebody's eyes and you're creating something on the spot. Um, but it's magical because that will never be seen again and will have never have been seen before. And you work with the audience as well. So in an improv show, uh, you ask for the audience to be very very much involved. Um, of course, it's um, it's optional, but we do ask for suggestions and we ask for um, them to shout out things. And it's really a kind of a shared community experience. Um, and it's it's so exhilarating, I think, as an audience member watching it, because you, you have no idea what's going to happen. Um, and it really is. It's it's electric. Um, and I think that improv is very special because it can have a really good impact on your personal and professional life, because it's all about working as a team eye contact, listening um, stop like just not focusing on yourself because it's not about you it's about us and taking the focus off you and focusing on someone else and trying to make them look good um, and also just being creative and having fun and it's never going to be seen again so who cares you know just just like enjoy it But I know that you do work with all sorts of different people and companies and I was thinking you know shouting out in my head, team building, team building. So you probably walk into all sorts of companies and do workshops there and help the the people who are there. But some of them may not be in a creative sphere. Yeah. And, you know, I do workshops at the EIB and uh, recently I was working with uh, Arcelor Mittar. Hope I'm saying that right. Um, and it, it does take a while to sort of, you know, these people work in banks and they're they're in work mode a lot of the time when they come into a workshop. So it does take me a while to warm them up and loosen them up. And there's often a resistance there of like, oh, I feel stupid. This is stupid. I'm self-conscious. What the hell? Who is this weird woman making me do these weird things? But gradually, you know, and I and I really try and um, ease people into it and I want to make them feel comfortable. Um, and after about a half an hour, it's amazing, you know, like what people can do. And, you know, that's why I love improv, because it's normal people who have normal jobs being creative and kind of being actors. Um, Whereas in my other life, you know, being a professional actress and studying that, you know, it's all very serious and we're very competitive and we're backstabbing, (laughs) you know, and you're like, (laughs) I want the part. You know, it's very different. Like, of course, that's a generalisation. But with improv, it's just just people coming together, um, you know, having a bit of fun. And I think it's amazing just to take a little bit of time out of your day to be creative and just have a bit of a laugh and be amazed at the things you, you can create. You know, I think a lot of people are shocked sometimes by how good they can be. But tell us also about your performance, because I know you've also got an improv troupe. So not only do you do workshops, but you've got the Garage Gang. The Garage Gang. Yeah. So I set this up uh, 
the end of last year and we started doing shows here in Luxembourg in February. Um, they've been going really well. We've sold lots out at Roca's um, bar in the city centre. Um, now this time we're going to move to a slightly bigger venue because it keeps selling out. So we're going to be at Teatro Ledis on December 17th at 7pm. Uh, you should all come. It's going to be a, a Christmas Hanukkah special. Um, so just to underline that, December 17th at Teatro Ledis. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it's uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. And I just invite people to come along and have a laugh and have a little drink and then get involved with us. You know, you can throw uh, suggestions up at us and shape the stories that we will make in front of you as well. And why is it that you wanted to act? Why did you want to move into that world of acting? Um, I don't know, because I started acting at like five. And oh, it's so it's been, always been there. It's always been a massive part of my life and it's always been my goal and my dream to to perform in some way. You have siblings. I do. I, ha- I have a lot of siblings and I, I, came, I come from a very performative household. We were always messing and singing and telling stories. Um, so and where are you on the sibling list? I'm the youngest. So perhaps this has a slight influence yeah. on the need to, to show the voice. Yeah, at least it's being my psychologist here. <laughs> yeah, maybe there's something there. Where I, I But also I think being the youngest child and I was funny and I think my siblings gave me a lot of attention when I was performing and doing jokes so that I probably became a bit addicted to that I'm not going to lie <laughs> <laughs> Well we can't wait to, to see you we'll have to have an RTL Today little excursion to yeah. see you on stage and, and we may even have to have a team building Absolutely Oh yeah What do you think Sasha? Absolutely we should um, come definitely on, September, on December the 17th but team building I think it's a good idea Because I'd be really you, scared you, Yeah because do you feel more relaxed afterwards? Yeah definitely and you know I was um I teach regularly, uh, weekly here. And one of my students said the other night, he's like, you know, I, I came from work tonight and I, I was in a bit of a grumpy mood, but now I've, I'm in a great mood. You know, I feel so much better now after the workshop. And it's also for team building. It can really help people get in a creative mindset. So often they'll do it before these big workshop days, you know, where you're brainstorming or coming together. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it can have a big impact. There's wonderful exercises that you can do in groups. We do it in our Art Lyrique group as well, where you it's all about the energy between people like you've described and where you're throwing the sounds and even in opera I know that they walk around with their eyes closed because they're trying to feel where other people are on the stage. Yeah we do a lot of that in improv and acting as well it's um you call it like group mind where you're kind of instinctively in tune with each other without speaking without looking uh, so one exercise that we do sometimes is we get in a tight circle we close our eyes and we count to 20 but only one person can speak at a time and if you go two people count at the same time you have to go back to one but what it means is you really have to listen to the group listen to to each other's breath and be so in tune with each other and I know it might sound a bit naff but it's so powerful when it happens you know it's inc- incredible and you create this energy it's amazing No I totally understand that energy because it's an energy like you've explained outside of yourself and really for and within the group for the audience ultimately um, and another one I know they often um, rehearse with masks on so it's about the body and not about the face yes. Yeah, it's incredible. And all these things have different links, you know, between singing and acting and writing, all these creative processes. And I think that improv can really help you in, in your in your day to day life as well, being a better listener, maybe being a better colleague, like teamwork, all these types of things. And also just just chilling out a bit, you know, just <laughs> relaxing and having the confidence to get up and speak on stage. 
Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And we're going to book that in. We're Just to underline it once more, we should be... Uh, so if you come along to the Garage Gang Improv Show on t- uh, December 17th at Teatro Ladis, and you can also follow Dig Deep Improv, which is my little company where I run uh, improv workshops, um, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram. And that we will certainly do. Thank you so much for joining me, thank Melissa. You, Great treat. Lisa Burke on RTL Today Radio. And now we turn to Philippe Lamish, who is an artist and biologist, Luxembourgish, who discovered his passion for printmaking in Boston in 2001. He went on to train as a traditional printmaker at the School of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston and the Kala Art Institute in Berkeley. I could go on. There's so many things you've created. Art to Cure, for instance, uh, a non-profit organisation. And of course, you've raised so much money there. It's you and some colleagues raising money for uh, good causes. Uh, in just over four years, in fact, you've raised over 200,000 euros, which is no small amount at all for biomedical research. And also, you've promoted over 40 artists from the region, even having your show in New York. So, Philippe, lovely to have you here. Hello, Lisa. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's a great honour. So tell us about the type of art that you make. <clears throat> well, I'm, as you just mentioned, I'm a printmaker. That's kind of what I learned. You know, that's what I went to school for. And as you mentioned, I'm also a biologist. So what you started off with biology. People are always asking <laughs> me, how do you do both? And I was always lucky to have studied in places where I could have I could do both. You know, I went to school first in Belgium, in Namur, where there's a Ecole de Beaux-Arts, where I took evening classes and I went on to Harvard, where right next to it was that school you just mentioned, where I could do the certificate in printmaking. And then when I... Yeah, but normally people at Harvard don't have enough spare time to do another degree on the side. Yeah. In big big (laughs) cities like, you know, Boston, um, you have these evening classes. So, you know, at 8 p.m. you start the second part of your day then, basically, you know. It was an intense time, but it was also when I was in my early 20s where you can do anything, right? Oh, well, I'm hoping that will last a little bit longer. I'm hoping, although I do value my sleep. It is true. I do value my sleep. (laughs) So then describe the work to our listeners. What does it look like? Oh, so, well, I went through a, a, very, a few phases, I guess, of just learning first what printmaking is. You know, I really just uh, fell into it by accident because I want to take painting classes. And at that time, my brother, who was at Cambridge in the UK, had taken some printmaking class had told me about it. And when I found out that at that school in Boston, painting was sold out or full, you know, uh, I wasn't able to take those classes. I saw there was printmaking classes still. And so, oh, why not that? I remembered what my brother told me. And so I learned everything from copper etching to woodcut to you know, monotyping and all these things. So, you know, those people who know printmaking, they know these things look very different from each other. But I was just so fascinated by the technique, you know, using different materials as a template that you then color and then you use pressure uh, to basically transfer the the image onto paper, right? That's basically the general idea behind printmaking, right? Um, in French, you often say gravure or estampe for this. And uh, for a long time, I was most, mostly working in copper etching, 
which are often one or two colored only because it takes a lot of time to just prepare one plate. You know, you etch with acid into the copper. Uh, you know, you have to be really careful. It reminded me a lot of biology, actually, because doing a copper etching, you need to be careful, you know, to not harm yourself with the acids. Yeah. You need to wear goggles and, you know, protective clothing. You have to think about the dilution of your acids. Uh, how long do you expose the plate to the, to the acids? So it's really very close to being in the lab, you know, in that you have to be, you also need to be relatively um, precise in how you do things. But then in the next steps, you can then improvise. And I love that part in the art, right? That is this very rigorous part. And then when you print and you use different colors and maybe use multiple plates that you print on top of each other, then all of a sudden mistakes can actually be a good thing. You know? Well, I was actually thinking when Melissa was talking about that the creative mindsets and how the singing, the drama, the art all link. Everybody needs a creative mindset and uh, that includes the world of banking, let's say here in Luxembourg and also the world yeah, of science. Exactly. Nothing changes without a creative mind. And you know what? You asked me before, how could you do both the biology and the art? Well, it turned out that I became the more creative par uh, person in the laboratory where I was doing my PhD and, and ended up always being asked to do all the creative things. Oh, we need to develop a concept a poster about this new tech technology for nature, right? A, a poster that will then be available for everyone to hang on their bench. And so I was always the go-to person for, for these kind of things. It was in 2000, I was the first person to develop a website for any lab at the Faber-Kanz Institute because I had learned also, you know, the graphic design and these things. So in, in a way, it's actually a really good thing to have multiple interests, multiple talents, because very often in this world, you have to be interdisciplinary. I mean, it's a word you hear over, over and over again. And so, yeah, it turned out to be a good thing. And you have uh, a vernissage uh, yes, coming up. Exactly. Um, that's very exciting. Um, it's called Drop the Mic. <laughs> it's coming <laughs> very up appropriate. Uh, December 3rd, Saturday, December 3rd, uh, at the Valerius Gallery in the city, Place du Théâtre. And I'm showing a, a series of um, collages because I really went into collages recently uh, where I'm actually mixing what I'm printing with urban, uh, uh, you know, print, uh, prints, affiches, you know, posters that I find uh, on the walls, you know. I have From all over Europe. All over Europe and even... I, 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 for my last show, I had Africa included, the States. It was a funny story because I decided to start this this kind of way of doing the, 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 the collages uh, just before COVID. I had done a residency, an art residency in New York, and that's where I found one of these walls with really old stuff that, you know, I could take off. They were all broken already, but cool colors, cool patterns. And I had a show in New York then, and that was... Th that kind of art was the one that was the most popular. And I was like, well, you know what? 2020 will be my traveling year. <laughs> you know, sure enough, uh, that didn't happen. Yeah. Uh, I did contact all my artist friends who all were out of jobs in, during COVID and asked them to collect for me. And so I got all these cool parcels throughout 2020 from Shanghai to Rio to Bulgaria, uh, where people, I paid them, you know, I gave them some money because I knew I could make money with it. And so they were all very happy and it was a nice collaborative project. And so for this next phase now, where I was able to travel again, uh, where I could really pick myself uh, what I wanted to collect for for my pieces and really understanding where I was going with it now. Uh, it was more of a solo thing now. But uh, the idea is the same, you know, kind of represent these different cities. Um, I went to 
Lyon, Naples, New York City, even Vegas uh, over the last months to collect and then make pieces that, you know, I always indicate where I collected the thing. So, you know, oh, this piece is from Paris or from London. And you can maybe find a few things in there that indicate something that you know, maybe the name of the theatre or a place that you recognise. Well, I've seen some of the artwork and it looks absolutely fabulous as always. So we highly recommend that people in search of a Christmas gift, perhaps. It's colourful and it, you know, makes people happy to look at this things always and it's (laughs) always lovely to to know the artist and to know the origin of the work and to meet you as well no doubt and i'm sure given your uh, website expertise you have a website where people can buy things too i well people like to buy in person that's my experience you know because especially as my things are a little bit larger they like to come to a gallery that's why it's so important for me to to have these exhibitions where i can meet people explain to them but uh, i keep my instagram very up to date and that's where people can always see me in the in the um in the studio or you know new pieces that i'm creating or even collecting in cities you see me climbing up walls in, in downtown <laughs> la uh, so my philip lamesh is my my instagram account too so people can find uh, everything that i do there and we will definitely put a link to that thank you so much Philippe. thanks lisa the lisa burke show And finally, turning to Sasha, we don't have as long as we usually do, but we do have a few minutes to reflect on the week that was, the week's news. Oh, hello, Lisa. I was going to uh, actually start with happy news this week. Oh, that's so good. This week, because I was thinking how quite often my segment's a bit depressing. And RTL Today... <laughs> Not your fault. <laughs> but RTL Today started a new initiative, which I think is fantastic, which is Happy Monday News. So um, I thought I'd just steal their idea and make some Happy Friday News for the end of the week. Um, so I think it's a really good idea to have some upbeat news, you know, it, and it was quite quite wide-ranging from uh, a black-naped pheasant pigeon, which everybody thought was extinct, uh, was found after a month searching in Papua New Guinea. Some researchers walked through the jungle and found this extinct bird so you know, that, that was good news uh, and the uh, like the US um, have passed um, uh, regulations for lab grown meat. Yes, for example, no. so uh, chicken uh, to be grown in a lab so for consumers to be able to use. So this kind of thing. I thought, well, this is quite nice to, to read this kind of thing. Sets you up on a Monday. Maybe we should move it to a Friday. Oh, <laughs> Sets you up for the both. weekend. We can have, I think that's very good. I'm always happy to hear good news. It, it changes the mindset. I'm sure yeah. it has an effect on us. It's like music. It's like everything around us. Anything you hear, we absorb it somehow and uh, and it has an effect on us. Um, another, uh, well, it's positive news. Plastic bags. Yes, exactly. We've that was also well. part of it. Was that Luxembourg is using far fewer plastic bags? In fact, it's gone. It's gone down uh, from uh, I can't remember the exact numbers. From sixty-two plastic bags for every Luxembourg resident, it's gone down to twenty-six. So the number has halved, um, which is fantastic news, uh, and just shows you that this sort of nudge philosophy of making of just charging a little bit of money for a plastic bag works. Uh, uh, not just the nudge philosophy, but also people what you see around you. So people around you, they've got their tote bags or their Valorex bags or whatever bags they have. And uh, and you see it. You see it and then you do it. You you, uh, you become one of the sheep. But in Yes, a good you way. feel quite ashamed if you've yeah. forgotten your plastic, <laughs> but, uh, forgotten your own uh, yeah. long, long bag. Don't look bag. at me. <laughs> yes. 
don't judge. You are very environmentally friendly. You're a cyclist. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, just in general, you know, if you do have a plastic bag, you're like, oh, God, I need to put this Oh, away. don't look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Sorry. Sorry, this is acting. Oh, sorry. Yes. yes. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> no, <laughs> Sticking with the sustainable theme, we have good news from Remish Christmas Market. Their synthetic ice rink. Well, yes, it's been done for sustainability reasons because it uh, the synthetic synthetic ice does not use water or electricity. But I wonder. I don't actually know what a synthetic ice rink yeah. is. In fact. No, I don't think anyone has actually used it. Oh. The, the, the big question is out there: will, will it be as as fun and as interesting to skate on synthetic ice? Um, according to the Swiss company that make it, yes, it's just as good. Um, but it was super expensive, obviously, to to put up and rent, and they've had to buy new skates oh. because you can't have the skates with the grippy edges on the, on the front. It. Yes, <laughs> um, and uh, I I wonder. It's a bit like Christmas trees. Is it really more sustainable in the end? You know, with Christmas trees, there was also a big question: Is it, what's more sustainable to have a, a a grown Christmas tree that you cut, but it has been deliberately grown for this reason. Do you get a Christmas tree in its pot or do you have an artificial tree? And, you know, the jury's out which one is more sustainable. I've so done, I feel the same about artificial ice. Yeah, I've done all three of those Christmas tree options. And I've also done, where, where I used to live in Steinzel, I used to buy a Christmas tree that they they take back and they replant. So you can have your own Christmas tree replanted and take it back every year. Um, I yes. then replanted my own Christmas tree and it died. Yes, I did exactly the same. <laughs> it just died. It yeah, oh, no. I uh, we, used to, we called it Frosty, the Christmas tree. Oh. Frosty is dead. I'm afraid. Oh, no. <laughs> it's sad. We've so, got I don't know. I'm a big skater, so I kind of feel that you probably can't pick up any speed on a synthetic ice rink. So I would still head out for Beaufort or Cockleshoy if you actually want to real skate. Right. Well, I'm not a great skater, so I, I get scared of the speed on skates. And I had some bad child experiences on the ice. Oh, dear. <laughs> uh, hurting my back and various other things. Well, now we have time for one or two more stories. So of the selection that we have, what would be your favourite couple of stories to end the show with? No pressure. Well, okay. So the, the favourite story, I'm going to stick it to a very uh, superficial, is that the baguette has won UNESCO Cultural Heritage Prize. And um, I'm surprised it didn't have it already, quite yeah. frankly. <laughs> frankly. But the, my favourite quote on this story comes from President French President Macron, who said it was 250 grams of magic and perfection. And I was like, how how proudly French can you be? <laughs> I didn't. I, is that a thing that they have to be 250 grams? Apparently. Mm-hmm. The UNESCO the perfect one. UNESCO baguette. And I suppose it's one that isn't with the cereale. It doesn't have the, no, the brand I stuff. No, I imagine not. But this is sort of unique heritage status. So there were other things up there like Algerian rye music and oh. harissa paste or um, slivovitz, the plum brandy. There were various things. Um, but it was Algerian rye music and uh, the baguette that won. Wow. That's incredible. That really is. That is a great story. And <laughs> have we got any recommendations for the weekend ahead of us? Apart from Philippe's vernissage, of course. Yes. Well, I could also mention that the uh, Luxembourg Association APPL, Association pour les artistes plasticiens en Luxembourg, they have an open day on December 4th, all afternoon, in uh, the Rue Auguste Lumière in uh, Folleurecast. And 
And who will be there? It's going to be, there's actually, it's a new studio. It has about 30 or 40 artists that each have their little studio there. So everything from painters to sculptors to writers even. And they all have their studio open that day. So you can go from studio to studio and check out what they do. There's going to be drinks. Uh, families are welcome. And uh, so it's a very nice thing to do on a rainy Sunday afternoon. That's a, a wonderful invitation. Thank you so much, Philippe. I, I really enjoyed that little addition. And Rachel, are you still with us? I'm still with you. <laughs> Have you got <laughs> any any final thoughts on what you've heard from our Luxembourg base here? Because I know you're you're not in Luxembourg. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not. But I was listening avidly to the Christmas tree scenario, and um, <laughs> and I, I'm loving the fact that there's more and more companies in the UK that are doing rent a tree. Yeah. So they come and collect it at the end and replant it. And in my last house, I had two beautiful trees that I'd replanted myself. Well, you obviously did it more successfully than I did it. Um, but yeah, the rent-a-tree, I think that is that is really, really good uh, because you feel like you're not taking from nature and um, you're not putting in trees that weren't already there, etc. So, well, Rachel, again, so much thanks for you joining us today. And as always, thank you to all of my wonderful guests, both here in Luxembourg and to you, Rachel, over in the UK. And we wish you, first of all, the very best of luck with the upcoming operation. And beyond that, a very, very peaceful and happy Christmas. Thank you very much. And happy Christmas to all of you as well. Thank you, Rachel. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Bye.